0: Today on the Almond Journey podcast.
1: Being outside is great. Watching the bloom is great. Watching it leave and spring come and new life. But I said then that, hey, the best part is still when that check comes because <laughs> you can't do the rest of it without the check.
0: We're talking orchard management, farm profitability and innovative practices with Merced Almond grower, Dan Clendenin. Hey, welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities and advance this almond industry. And today we head down to Merced, California, to visit with Almond Grower Dan Clendenen. Dan farms in both Merced and Madeira as part of a family partnership with his brother and sister. Growing up, the family grew fresh market vegetables. They eventually got out of that business in the late 1970s and started planting almonds. I got the chance to sit down with Dan in person in Sacramento during the Almond Conference 2022. We talk about his personal almond journey, his hands-on approach to orchard management, and some of the innovative practices that he has adopted over the years and how they work on his operation first though dan shares how he initially fell in love with farming at a young age and decided that that's ultimately where he wanted to spend his career
1: i was actually out in the field when i was about eight years old driving the bobtail trucks through the field and, and my dad wouldn't, didn't want to have to pay a guy to drive the truck forward so he, i was the one looking through the steering wheel driving and so i always knew i wanted to be out in, in the ag i wanted to be outside i uh Went to a private school, and they didn't have a, an ag program in their high school, so I switched over to the, to the city public schools to get into the FFA. And uh, so pursued uh, through the ranks in the FFA there, and then uh, went into uh, mechanized ag as a major at the junior college, then over to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo.
0: Great. And what does the operation look like today? Kind of describe uh, the operation today. I know you said a couple different locations, and maybe give us the overview.
1: Well, when we first planted, we had a ranch there in Merced on the east side of town, and it was um, about 96 acres. In 97, we purchased about a 50-acre block just to the west of us from a a family friend. And then uh, in 2001, I picked up another 18-acre block from another family friend. And then in uh, 2015, I leased part of the the family's ranch from my wife's family in Madera, and we planted another 110 acres there. So now we're up to about 260 acres.
0: Hey, and wh- what's your favorite part of farming?
1: I just like being outside. You know, I got asked this question at a session in, at the Blue Diamond meeting. And I said, but, you know, being outside is great. Watching the bloom is great. Watching it leave and spring come and new life. But I said then that, hey, the best part is still when that check comes (laughs) because you can't do the rest of it without the check.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, over the years, how have the challenges of of farming almonds changed for you?
1: Well, when we started, we thought we were a little bit uh, progressive with our planting with 90 trees to the acre. And at that point, 84 was about an average planting. And then when we uh, redeveloped the orchard that we bought there in, in 97, we were the first in our area to go to micro sprinklers and uh, everybody else was still on flood. And so uh, it's kind of evolved quite a bit in, in the way we do things and the population and the varieties. And, you know, we've stayed with Blue Diamond all the way through, through, through the hard times when they, they had issues. And that was one of the two conditions when we planted the first orchard. My dad said, hey, we got to get into Blue Diamond because we'd always worked with co-ops. Uh, when we were in the tomatoes, we were a co-op and such. And the other condition was we had to get it on with Mintern Huller, which is another cooperative in our area. And so we, we met those conditions and got started from that point. And uh, we've evolved now into doing some custom harvesting as well and a little bit of farm management. We're doing less acres now, but it's, it's all right. I'm getting to the age where I don't mind doing a little bit less.
0: H- how did the, the custom harvesting thing come about? When did that start?
1: Well, one of the other neighbors in the area uh, had been doing some custom harvesting and he was switching from almonds to pistachios. And so he came over and said, hey, hey, you can take over these fields that I've been farming. And so that was around around 2002, 2003. And uh, so as a result of picking up a couple hundred acres at that time to, to do some custom work, well, then we started upgrading our equipment and to be able to handle that work and stay with just, uh, just a couple people and not have a, a big crew having to deal with it. I have just two full-time people, so I work to give them at least 40 hours a week all winter. I'll make work for them just to keep them busy and uh, then just make sure they stick around. And, and the one guy's been with me now for 20 years, and the other one's about 18 years, so they've been with me quite a while.
0: That's great. What for you has been kind of the most challenging, both in general over the years, but also, you know, most recently?
1: We do things a little differently. We we self-finance everything we do. So we, we probably left some opportunities behind because uh, we never borrowed money. So we probably walked past some opportunities because of that. But then again, I'm not beholden to anybody else either. You know, in the early 2010s, there were prices were so high, we banked the money, didn't spend it on ourselves, and and uh, used all that money to redevelop that new orchard in Madeira, and uh, paid cash for everything. So that's been a good thing for us, as far as you know, not putting us in debt. But uh, over the years, challenges have been, of course same now as it has been, uh, it too, is uh, those water. And uh, so we're having to deal with that, of course, and, and the, all the new regulations that come out every year. And since I'm only running two employees and I'm out in the field with them, we just don't have that kind of volume of work to do. So... It's a little tough trying to keep up with with all the regulations, and, and for a two-man crew, it's almost as much work as having 10 guys or 50 guys. There's just so many things that you got to keep track of and try and be in compliance with with some agency. Of course, you go through this, the times where, hey, we're, we're just covering our expenses or we're not quite covering our expenses, and you have to kind of work through that, but we keep some reserve all the time in the, in the bank, and we've been able to weather those storms and and we maybe cut back and maybe we don't, uh, maybe I don't get paid on time and, and uh, I'll cut back and wait for my check. But I always make sure the employees have their check on every Saturday and keeps them happy and willing to come back too. So.
0: You said that's kind of the way your father operated. So did you just make the decision from day one that you wanted to self-finance?
1: Well, we just decided that, you know, this is yeah kind of the way we'd always done it. So it's just been a matter of, kind of the philosophy we've had. And so it makes it a little tough for me to sit on, a, on the board at the Hammond Huller and, and 15 or $20 million loans, because it's just something I never, never really been associated with and used to doing. But I think we've done okay. I mean, farming has been good to us. So it, I'm happy that uh, this is what we're doing.
0: Has that ever been tempting where you thought, oh boy, I could really have an opportunity to grow here if I just took on a little bit of debt?
1: Well, it's yeah, you know, the opportunity is there. Sometimes you think about it, and you think, gosh, you know that maybe that's a little too much money to be spending. You know, when when it's money that you you're going to have to go borrow. But I don't regret not making the big make jump. I mean, I I've got friends that are farming thousands of acres, and they're constantly worried. And uh, so we are more comfortable you know, like I said, just staying where we are. And, uh, you know, we've grown, we've grown over the years. So I'm farming a lot more acres now than my dad ever did. And uh, I don't have near the headaches that he did with hand crews and things like that, working on the crew, on the, on the fresh market tomatoes.
0: And does and that get difficult when input prices have done what input prices have done here?
1: Well, of course, that just, it narrows your margin of profit again, and the input prices going up wouldn't have been such an issue if the sales, the income prices, had also come up with the inputs. And of course, from lots of different reasons this year, that that didn't happen, and so it's going to be a, a kind of a break-even type of a year. But we do a lot of uh, shuffling the money. Where we'll defer our payments and we we'll push them back a year, and it gives me time to to look at what we can do with them with that. And so we're redeveloping an orchard this year, for example. And so I don't have any income on that. So this year I had all my income still on that because it had been deferred last year. And so now that money all came in, and so we're we're going to push next year's expenses into into this year, so that uh, you know that our income will will still sustain what. Uh, what our income level is. And so we'll write it out fine. So we do a lot of that where we're, either we're deferring or prepaying something to, to kind of balance our income and try not to give it away to the government, not all of it anyway. Right.
0: Well, it seems like, you know, independent of, of this self-financing thing, you just have always been very disciplined when things are very good to, to not, you know, overspend in those times. Is that just something you got from your dad as well? Or is it because of the self-financing thing that you think kept you disciplined during those years? Or is it your wife?
1: No, the wife had, had an outside job. And so that's given us a lot of opportunities to do things that maybe my brother didn't because his wife didn't work outside of the house and worked a little bit in the office there. But it's just been a matter of just hey, this is just the way we operate, and and uh, you know we we always try to keep a close to a year's expenses in reserve. We we don't draw a lot out of the company, and and uh, we try to keep that reserve in there. And then when we do need some money, it's there. But we don't routinely take a draw other than my my salary for management, and and uh, and and I work on an hourly. So if I'm working on one of my other projects, well then I don't charge the company for my time.
0: That's great. And uh, some people would say that that'd be hard to keep track of like their own hourly pay. Do you have like a system for tracking all that?
1: Well, I just write down my, my hours every day, just like I do the employees' hours and what I was working on and where. And so if we're doing some custom work, well, then that gets listed in there on custom work or, and I'll keep my hours separate on each of the different fields so we know where, where my time is being spent on those different enterprises. It's not that hard to keep track of it. It's just uh, just got to be keep a notebook with you and, and do it. And I, I kind of picked that up from doing the custom work because, uh, you know, if I'm, over on a custom job part of the day and I'm on my own work or, or you know, or the Clinton and Orchards work. Well, that's, that's uh, where I'm logging my time, so.
0: That yeah, makes perfect sense. I just don't hear of a lot of people doing that, you know. So you, do you ever look at, I'm curious, you know your, your yield, you know, in a, in a particular field, but do you ever look at, you know, your yield per your time spent or per time spent?
1: Well, I, I clock the hours, but I haven't really sat down. And, and even though we've got the separate fields, uh, we do have three different contracts because I have my own. I had uh, one for the Clendent and Orchards. I had one for my parents. You know, we, we track the expenses separately in those, and, and, and I log my hours in there. And so when I come up and I want to a really report on the expenses for the year on that, well, then it'll log my hours into each one of those fields separately.
0: And do you use the software for that?
1: Yeah, we use uh, AgData or Blue Skies programming. And so that does all my, I do all the, all the bookkeeping. I do all the receivables and the payables and, and the payroll taxes and, and everything else. So that's how I track everything. You are a busy guy. You do a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get on, involved a little bit too much sometimes maybe, but it's the people that really are busy are the ones that kind of can get involved and, and do something extra. You know, we do what we can and do it when we can <laughs>
0: well you mentioned the compliance earlier and you know you like to be outside and the hands-on manager how do you keep track of all the compliance stuff especially in a state like california where there's a lot of regulation
1: i really depend on getting a newsletter from either the farm bureau or or maybe blue diamond will bring up something and and just looking in the trade the magazines there maybe what's coming up and i kind of follow the ammon alliance and and since they're uh, do a lot of the legislative work that helps keep track of it. Uh, I'm on the grower liaison committee with Blue Diamond, and I've been on advisory. So I'll pick up some information from them saying, hey, something new is coming up, or you know, maybe the Ag Commissioner's Office will have a, have a session that will be explaining, you know, new laws and regulations that are upcoming, you know, to be looking out for. And so it's just kind of gathering them from a lot of different sources and just kind of trying to keep up with it all. So...
0: Well, it sounds like you're on top of things nonetheless. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, adopting micro sprinklers fairly early relative to your neighbors. Are there other technologies uh, on the farm that have made a big impact uh, over your time?
1: Well, in the, the newest planning from the 2015 in Madeira, on that one, we took our micro sprinklers a little further we, and we automated there's 110 acres there, and it's divided into 16 different irrigation plots. That One of the irrigation plots is, is nonpareil. The other one's are Aldrich. Uh, so it's uh, this is the first time we used a dual-line system so that we could water by variety rather than having to manually go out and turn the valves on and off. Then we put in weather stations, and we put in these soil sensors and that the pump is on, that we're developing pressure in the system, and can monitor the flow. And the other thing we've kind of stepped up with is... Uh, We've gone to mating disruption, and so that's given me another opportunity. They they put a a second weather station in because of that, so I get weather stations from across the field, but that gave me more temperature monitoring capacity because now I've got 110 thermometers across the field instead of two. Uh, so that stepped up. We've gone to Phytek to do tree stress, as well as looking at the CIMIS reports, and that's kind of how we schedule our, our water usage. And so this year I'm um, investigating adding a deer point group to our system to do the nutrient management because that seems to be my hardest thing down there is not having automation control on my nutrients. And so uh, we're looking at that this year for another upgrade to that field.
0: And that's what DeerPoint point does is they do they they will automate the flow of nutrients into the fertigation. Is that right?
1: Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna come in and they're gonna do tissue samples and soil tests and water tests and analyze what our inputs are. I'll give them the, the tissue results from the last couple of years and production reports, and then they'll craft or design a nutrient program around the existing inputs. Like we use compost, we got some cover crops in there. And so they're gonna look at the demands and what, what we're supplying now, and then fine tune in a, a nutrient program. And we already do multiple applications on our nitrogen as it is, but uh, we may do nitrogen one week and maybe next week we're doing calcium and or maybe we're doing uh, some, some potash injection. And so with their system, they're maybe putting in some nitrogen every time. They're constantly spoon feeding a little bit in instead of putting it in in bigger applications. And so the whole point of that is to don't apply any more than what the tree is gonna pull out of the ground that week and avoid possibility of of leaching it down past the root zone.
0: Uh, I'm curious, going back to your irrigation plots, how did you choose the 16? What what did you use to decide where, uh, you know, a new plot should start and one should end type of thing?
1: Well, the field is pretty much a rectangle. It's a quarter mile by uh, a little more than a quarter mile. And so it, it naturally had a road right down the middle of it. And so that divided it in half already. And so we were looking at 55 acres on each plot. And so originally the irrigation company wanted to put just uh, three sub-mains across the field. And I said, no, I want to divide the field in the middle because the rows are too long. I want an escape road out of the middle when when we get to harvesting. So I said, we're going to put a road across the mill. So that's going to divide me now into four quadrants there. Now, we'll run it as, as two fields, an well, east half, a west half. Or when we get into harvest where we're running just the one variety, well, that can run all of that variety across the entire field or, or give it just a little shot of water on that variety or the one we're shaking and then let it dry up while the pollinator's getting full water. And then doing dual sub-mains for varieties, Well, that just split it up into 16 different fields. The irrigation technology has just made a big difference in in the way things operate now, and that was what I saw when we planted the field in '97, and thought, you know what, I don't want to flood this field anymore. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna look at the next step, and and even when we got into it initially in '81, I kept looking at the neighbors who were still cultivating their fields and rolling them and, and rolling and rolling and all the tractor passes. And I said, there's got to be a better way. And so we went to non cultivation immediately. And uh, now there isn't anybody in our area that's not non cultivation And we planted cover crops in the late 80s. Uh, we started playing with cover crops and trying that. So we, we've been toward the front of maybe the technology or, or moving into different things one of the, the growers that was on my board with me at the Huller says, you don't want to be the first necessarily, but you sure don't want to be the last.
0: Right. Well, what, I mean, you were real early on cover crops. Uh, what, what was it that caused you to go that direction? And I'm curious what you tell, you know, another grower who might say, why are you doing that? It's so much effort and extra water. And why would you do that?
1: Well, of course, when we did that, water wasn't an issue. But part of the issue is that we're in a kind of, that, that original ranch has is, is got a lot of clay soils in it. And so the first time we harvested on it, when we didn't have a cover crop, as we're sweeping, it's pulling up big chunks of clay and, and dirt and, and it's just destroying the surface and sweeping it all into the windrow. And and uh, so immediately after the first harvest, we said, we got to do something different. And so we started playing with different cover crops and we played with clovers and found out the clovers we were using at the time wanted to creep up on our borders. And so we moved away from that and we tried some grain mixes and found it we had too much residue. And so Now we've gone back to some annual clovers and we've gone to something called soil builder and we're part of the, pollination program and working with seeds for bees. So we've started doing that. And now we've gone into hedgerows. We've got two different hedgerows out of in Madeira And we hosted a, a meeting just last month to discuss hedgerows and what's involved with them. We've talked to growers in the neighbor, of course, has gone to micros now. And, and it's just made life so much simpler. In our ground, the water would start tracking and making gouges in the ground, little canyons, and and so it was an issue trying to get your nuts swept out of it, and just letting the native grasses you can grow was was a big help. It's not a one-size-fits-all type thing, and so you kind of play with each one of them and see what you're at, and we're always playing with something, uh, whether it's nutrients or whether it's valve control or or, uh, the mating disruption now. We're always watching for something that's coming up, and I'd rather be kind of ahead of the game and have some experience with it before it becomes something that's going to be a mandatory or the regular cultural practice, the normal.
0: That's great. And so have you decided to incorporate the cover crops on your ranches in both towns now or still mostly on the clay ground?
1: We've gone to the other stuff where it's on the sandy loam also. For there, I'm looking at, of course, for the bees uh, to give them that, that other food source. But over there as, as well, I'm looking at it on that type soil. It kind of wants to seal off and, and not uh, penetrate. And that's part of what I'm looking at with the deer point group is kind of monitoring that and maybe work the calcium into the system a little more often to, to try and get some more, better water penetration for that field.
0: And is is that what the hedgerows do for you as well? Is is the the habitat for pollinators and the penetration as well, or what? What are the hedgerows? Uh, what are the benefits you're seeing from the hedgerows?
1: The hedgerow thing is is not going to make any difference on the water penetration. I mean, that is simply a a pollinator thing. On this field in Madeira, that we've got uh, on a seventeen hundred foot on the one side and about twelve hundred feet on the other side, and so we're kind of covering the field a little more, uh, giving some variety around the field try and draw some bees over to the outsides. Part of it is the stewardship program with Blue Diamond. It's another plus on your side as involvement in the stewardship, but it's mainly a pollinator type thing. And and so they're blooming all times of the year too. Same kind of thing. It's, it's not just a one and done like our cover crop that's in the orchard. It's, this kind of gives us something on a year-round spectrum. It just kind of depends on where you're at and what you want to do and uh, as to f- the varieties that you're going to plant.
0: And, and how do you how do you think about, you know, kind of return on investment on something like that? That's just it's a it's a natural solution and it's helpful, but uh, it maybe hard to like tie it to a specific yield or decrease in input or something like that. How do you look at that?
1: Yeah, the hedgerow is is more just uh, you're going to help the pollinators and the, the NRCS program actually paid my full cost on putting that in. So it wasn't a cost issue. It was more of an environmental type thing and trying to 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 be friendlier with the environment and help. As far as return on investment, well, I'm in the Blue Diamond stewardship program, so the OSIP program. And so this is one of the 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 modules that gets you credit there to get up to the highest rating. And so we've been in the highest rating for the two years that Blue Diamond's been doing it. And so they're is an incentive because uh they're going to pay me for my time to fill out the paperwork and then they're going to come back and pay me a, a penny a pound for for uh my crop that year so there is some incentive to it and uh, and that it, it helps with that and, and getting you to where you're qualified for for that extra payment
0: well with you being uh an early adopter on so many things has there been anything that you know just hasn't worked out and, you know, sort of you've tried it and for whatever reason, it just hasn't hasn't been something that has stuck.
1: Well, the things that haven't stuck was like the first clover. So we planted being strawberry and New Zealand white and them just creeping all over the borders. And uh, we just had to modify how we think about doing some of these things a little bit and just improve on them. Same, same thing like with the cover crops, just try something different, see what, see what works better. And, and uh, some of the soil builder mix that we used a year ago didn't perform well in my fields, but one of the other growers I work with, it was great in his. It was five feet tall. The difference was that we did winter sanitation, and so after these plants had already started to grow, and then we were sw- sweeping our mummies over there and, then, and mowing them, and he didn't. And so where where he left it just alone for the winter, it did fantastic. So now we think, okay, well, maybe we got to maybe not grind our mummies up quite as early, maybe wait a little longer into the springtime. And we do do the the winter sanitation. We still want to do that. We just maybe will do something different about destroying those mummies and just kind of support our cover crops a little more.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Is there anything else you're looking to do next or any other problem you're looking to solve next with some new approach?
1: yeah you know, I just got a questionnaire about the electric tractors or autonomous tractors, and I'm at the age where I'll be sixty nine next year in march and and uh I'm looking at you know some kind of secession plan uh my kids are not coming back into it and which is kind of typical of so many of the of the this next generation that we're looking at and so uh I think to spend the extra money on some of those things maybe it's beyond where where our return's going to be and I would suspect in the next five years or something, maybe I'm going to want to have somebody else doing the, the harder, the hands-on stuff on it and, and maybe lease the ranch out, something like that. So technology-wise, I think kind of, you know, we're going to look at this fertilizer management. We're going to look at some of that. You know, we, we're in this time right now where prices are going to be a little low. And so we took out that, that one orchard. It was 24 years old. It was it was time to, to redo. And talking to my sister and, and says, you know what, let's, pull the trigger right now we were going to lease it out to vegetables and we decided no we got the money let's let's replant it now and uh you know we hope i mean the industry says that things will straighten out in about 3 years and about the time that we'll be coming in production with that block so i think we'll be in in good shape down the road and uh i like doing what i'm doing i mean I, that's why i got in FFA when when in high school right away and i got into projects that my dad didn't had absolutely no association with. I, I raise sheep, I raise some corn, and it's it's an opportunity when you're in agriculture to do things and do things differently than, than what's been done. But it's a hard occupation, and uh, you have to have a mentality for it that you love it. And uh, if you're going to be successful, you've got to be the ones out there. You can't be a pickup farmer and just depending on somebody else to get everything else done for you. I want to leave the the ranch in better shape than when, when I found it. Of course, I found it as an empty field, but we're trying to take care of the ground because, hey, that's that's where farmers make their living is is taking care of the environment. And uh, we're not out to to pollute the world. We want to make a better place.
0: Well, what a great place to wrap up today's episode. Thank you so much to Dan Clendenin for taking the time for this interview. There's a ton of time honored wisdom in this episode, I think. And I really appreciate Dan's willingness to share and, and to continue to pay it forward. Well, we here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the Almond industry has a story of their own, of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing voices of industry leaders, people like Dan Clendenin, may spark a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to this show on your podcast platform of choice and please pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this Almond journey together.